0: Can we develop low-cost ventilators? Can we take diving equipment that's built in America and match it up with some kit that's being used in Kenya and manufacture another part in South Africa that could make a ventilator for
1: $1,000? Hello, and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The melting pot is a result of my hunger for optimising business performance, scaling up organisations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesise what I've learned along the way, to help you build a higher quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode. We do cracking show notes. They're at dominicmonkhouse.com. So you've sold your company. You've made some money. Are you sailing around the Caribbean? Are you selling T-shirts on the beach? Do you start all over again? Or do you look to give back? Today's guest, John T. Slater has decided to create a business and to give back all at the same time. What he's done with his team at Blue Globe Innovation is he has created an organization that solve amazingly complex technical challenges for companies, for governments, and for NGOs. They run open innovation challenges around the world. And today we're gonna talk about a few of them. We're gonna talk about the UK government's ventilator challenge, which Jonti's team ran. We're going to talk about how the Rwandan government put together a challenge around pulling together drones and flying drones across a lake to an island to see whether they could use drones to deliver medical supplies and collect blood samples from remote villages, and how that challenge then had a direct impact in the UK during the COVID crisis, delivering blood to the Isle of Wight. And we're going to talk about what are some of the pitfalls and challenges around running these projects or these challenges? Um, What does the prize need to look like? What happens to intellectual property? Who owns it? How do you put it together and how does it work in practice? Because when I speak to CEOs, often they are running pretty well around the linear innovation. You know, they're getting better every day on business as usual. What their business is struggling to do is have incremental innovation. And that's what John T's firm can do, or certainly what firms like John T's can do. And that's, I think, a really interesting thing to come out of today's conversation. This helps people understand how they could solve a problem or how they could find a revenue stream for a product or a service that they don't currently have in place. I thought it was a fantastic conversation today with John T. I really enjoyed it. I'm sure you will too.
0: So my name is Jonathan Slater, also known as John T., I work for a company called Blue Globe Innovation, and I am the managing director. And what does
1: Blue Globe Innovation do?
0: So Blue Globe Innovation was a way to look at open innovation in a new way that could make it more accessible to both NGOs, development organizations, and small and large businesses that didn't want to pay for all of the extra bits that standard innovation consultancies want to provide. We engage in supporting a client to deliver innovation within their business or externally, but by assisting them. So we capacity build within their organizations. We don't try to do everything for them. We can do everything for them, but the majority of the time we go in and we thought lead or support and capacity build the staff to be able to handle the innovation programme
1: themselves going forward. And when you say NGOs, is that because I'm not saying you're a non-profit or a not-for-profit, but you know, that that there's a strong, you know, your motivation behind doing this isn't to become the richest John T. Slater imaginable, but actually to have change the world? So look, when
0: I... Just as a background, I met Dom many, many years ago, and I was working for a very small startup with two good friends, and we took a business from a three-person startup to listing it on the AIM stock market. And I was very lucky to be able to cash out at a very good time, and I made enough to make sure that my wife doesn't have to then worry about where everything is being, um, what we're spending money on. And that allowed me then to go, what else do I want to do with what I'm doing with my life? How can I make the world a better place? My wife and I decided many, when we first got together that we preferred to work on projects than to bring kids into the world. So we were able to take slightly higher risks than other people that would be willing to do with their organizations or their livelihoods. And it meant that I can go off to Rwanda for three months and not have to worry about everything happening at home because my wife can handle everything. And not have to worry that I'm leaving the kids alone and not being a good father or anything like that. And I'm very lucky to be an uncle and a godfather to too many kids now. So when I left working for our listed company, I went back to uni. And anybody who knows me knows I hate writing and I hate anything that forces me to think inside a box very particularly. So Anybody asking me, would you have done a master's? I said, I got to do a master's, but I got to do it the wrong way than anybody else would have thought about. I went and signed up to a couple of courses and I was persuaded by the center that I booked these courses on, which were all about renewable energy. We're talking 12, 13 years ago when renewables was this new thing and everybody was investing in it. And I thought, you know, I'm interested in that. I'm going to do a couple of courses on it and understand how it works. I'm gonna be a proper engineer. Well, a couple of courses turned into a master's course and 18 months later, I walked out with a master's degree and went, how did that happen? But during that time, I needed to earn money. And I was very, very lucky enough to be recruited by a very small startup in London called Omnicompete that was trying this new thing called Open Innovation Prizes. And I'd never heard of this program. I'd never heard of thing. All of my startups that I've ever worked on have been innovative and were trying to break new ground, but they weren't really supporting innovation for other people. It was just, how do we come up with a new product idea? God, let's just have a couple of drinks together and come up with a crazy idea and then put a team together and see if anybody will fund it. And it came to what else could? how else could you work? And so crazy guy called Simon Schneider recruited me and I think he regrets it sometimes and now now having known each other for a long time, but he taught me about this process called open innovation. And this was coined a term by a guy called Henry Cheeseborough, who came up with this idea that said, innovation funnel that everybody puts is they put lots of idea in the beginning and they have a single idea that comes out at the end. but actually, human nature is for ideas to leave and engage throughout that funnel. And so you want lots of holes in that funnel. So ideas can come in at late stages or ideas can leave at late stages and create a new funnel in another place. It doesn't just have to be a single in and out lots in one out kind of process. And I really engaged with that. I thought that's a really clever way of thinking, but how can you do it where you can engage 10,000 people to solve the problem, not just the people, the couple hundred people that you may want to engage with. Because those unknown unknowns, those people that you don't know about may be able to solve the problem because they're engaged with it
1: for other reasons. And I guess in the funnel, I'm just thinking about that. In, in the funnel, you might have, you might be stuck. And there's, a te- there's one in 10,000 people out there that can unstuck the problem. But they're not, they're not in the hundred who are working on it all the time. And so a mechanism that says, how do we pull them in and engage them for as long as they want to be for the impact that they need to have? It sounds, it sounds like an intellectual challenge that is then actually impossible to implement. So <laughs> how do you make that real? So you, what you have to do is you have to
0: break the problem down. So you know that you want to make an electric car. I want to design the best electric car possible. And you could give that problem out to a bunch of engineers and say, design me an electric car. And they will try and think about it from first principles, and they'll try and come up with the best way of doing it. But the majority of those problems that you have with an electric car have already been solved. But you may have a new way that you want to think about a particular element of it. You want to increase the battery storage. You want to be able to accelerate faster. You want to be able to have autonomous driving. Those elements don't require you to solve all of the other problems that are an electric car. How do you get people, how do you break the problem down so that you work out the team that's building the car, actually what is the problem that they're stuck on? And usually people engage with open innovation when either the CEO has read about it and gone, that's a great idea, we're going to do that as an organisation, or businesses come to us and go, we've been working on this problem Actually, I'm going to give you an example. So a petrochemical company has been trying to design a sensor. This is five years, six years old now. A sensor to go down an oil well. And they've spent many millions trying to develop this sensor package that can survive in an oil well for a number of years, giving them a bunch of things that they don't have to pull out continuously to surface. So they want something that's going to be really long term. And they've invested a ton of money in it, and they haven't been successful. Their engineers haven't solved the problem.
1: And one of the things that often happens when when you get smart people in a room like that is groupthink is that this problem is actually not solvable because they haven't solved it and their egos get in the way. But in this case, you're going to tell me that somebody sort of broke out and, and asked for help.
0: Well, it actually is even more complicated. A senior manager of the program said, look, why don't we take a risk? There are two different ways we can do this. We can either recruit some new brains into the team, and they used an innovation process that goes out and finds the best people to do that, or we can do this crowdsourcing, open innovation kind of process. And they both cost about the same amount of money. I think they were quoted like $40,000, $50,000 each for for both of these processes. One was going to go and find the best people that could help them, and one was just going to put the problem out to the crowd and said, solve the problem. But actually both worked, both brought in people in different ways. But the
1: crowdway
0: actually said, and lots of people came back and said, oh, you can use these new materials or you can come up with use this new technology. But one company came back and said, actually, we've solved this problem already. And everybody went, What do you mean you solve this problem already? You run it in an oil one? And they're like, No. But what we had done is we'd abstracted the problem. So we had taken. And said, instead of saying, you need to have something work in an oil well, we said, you need to have something that monitors these particular parameters, can't be touched, but has to be able to take these environmental conditions, and you can't service it for five years, and it would require you to dismantle a whole bunch of equipment. And we put that problem out there. And a food processing company had come up with a sensor to put into their processing system, but was stuck in the end of a corridor that was not able to be serviced. So it was in the, the most inaccessible part of their whole processing facility, and they needed to monitor what was happening at that particular point. They didn't monitor everything that the petrochemical company wanted to monitor, but they were managing temperature, pressure, and a couple of other parameters. And I think one was missing or something like that. But they said, we've already got this technology existing. Well, everybody was really happy. But so people they submitted. And what you have to be careful about is intellectual property. When you're crowdsourcing, you really need to think about intellectual property because you don't want somebody to give away the secret source. Because if as soon as they give that information away, somebody else can try and take it. You need a contract between all the parties and you need to deal with management of intellectual property. So well, that's one of the key things that me and my team are always thinking about is. How do we manage? How do we make sure that everybody will be fully supported through this whole program? Well, we did. It was done anonymously. So both sides didn't know who each other was until everybody agreed. And there was a certain amount of prize money that was agreed. I think it was like £10,000 for the right to license that technology and then an ongoing fee for each module they created or something like that. So it wasn't a huge amount of money, but it was a nice chunk of money that was going to be investable for this company that had already created this technology and hadn't done anything with it. they just using it their own plant. Well, when they found out that it was a petrochemical company that they were about to license their product to, they declined because they were an ethical food company who said, why am I going to have to do this? Why are you going to force me to accept money from a process that I don't want to do? And we had to come up with a whole new way of being able to deal with this so that the ideation, or this idea, this intellectual property could still be licensed. You never think about that. But for me, the part that's the interesting part is that quite a lot of the time, if you want something solved, there is an engineer who's already solved it, but maybe in a parallel industry.
1: And so there's a platform for these thousands of smart engineers all over the world, just desperate to, is it like people who love to solve a crossword puzzle? You're just tapping into the intellectual curiosity and the problem solving skills?
0: So there is platforms out there. So there's a company called Innocentive, who I used to work for, who have like 300,000 solvers on a database and you can put a challenge out there to those people and help solve that problem. But for the majority of cases, that works because there's a bunch there's a community that's already thinking it for pharmaceuticals or engineers but sometimes you need to create that crowd when you're working on something that's solving a problem in the global south in what previously was called the developing world you can't think about those people are more likely not on be on that database or in india so you may need to actually create your own crowd. You may need to go out and say, I want to solve this problem for Kenya in Kenya, Africa solving problems for Africa, India solving India problems for India kind of thing. And how do you make, sh- how do you build those crowds for that particular problem or for a set of problems? And that's where me and my team then spend days, weeks, months, years, managing communities and people in crowds to allow them to help solve these problems.
1: And so have you got, what's another good example of something from Africa or India? So just
0: to give an example of a program that I was involved in for the last year and a half, and it was called the Africa Drone Forum. And they decided, and this is a World Bank program that was also co-funded by UK aid and a load of other partners like, the World Economic Forum and other partners, and they decided they wanted to work out how drones could be best used to support medical delivery of equipment in Africa. Now, there's an amazing company out there called Zipline who were trying to prove it. And they, four or five years ago, went to the Rwandan government and said, we want to build a drone that will deliver blood to remote communities that are cut off or will take many hours to deliver, or days to deliver blood to, where we can deliver it via a drone. And they have a beautiful thing, Google Zipline and look at how their drones deliver these products. They parachute them down and drop them into these remote clinics around the world. But what we what we worked on, and we worked on the assumption, and I, I got involved because UK Aid helped fund this, was that could we persuade other drone companies to also get involved in this area? Could they deliver these blood packs or pick up blood samples or help monitor landslides or something like that in these remote parts of Africa and around the world, but use drones instead of manned aviation or by driving people there to take the, to deliver the equipment? So we came up with the programme initially, it was called the Lake Victoria Challenge, because they're all challenges or prizes. They're all These kind of programmes are also called challenges or prizes. And it was how could you deliver a blood sample 30 kilometres away from the mainland to an island in the middle of Lake Victoria? Because of a number of political things in Tanzania, with due to elections, it was moved to Rwanda and it came the Lake Kivu challenge. And we, pus- we did a outsource, we did a call and said, how many people want to do this? How many drone companies can deliver a blood pack from mainland to an island 20 kilometers away? And that's really complicated, Tom, because the majority of drones are flown within visual line of sight. The pilot can see the drone at all times. When it goes beyond visual line of sight, Civil aviation authorities and everybody then get involved because they're like, oh, that's like a, a pilot. That's like a plane. You need to be able to track it. You need to know how it's going to be. You need to be able to control it at all times. Even if it can have autonomous things, what can you do to do this? And it's not something that happens very often. There's very, very only in the UK in the last year have we really seen licenses happen for this beyond visual line of sight. But Africa really hadn't ever proved that it had, could be done, only in specific, very limited corridors. Could we do this in a where there are planes landing, where this is cloud-controlled airspace? So anyway, we decided to run this challenge. Could we deliver this? Could we get multiple plane drones to deliver samples or pick up samples for a road site where the pilot can't see the landing? or they can't see the takeoff at the remote location. Can this be done? And can you do it where you can get different teams to compete against each other? Not by just giving a license to people and saying, here, do it. Can you get them to go, who is the fastest, who can carry the most amount of weight, and who who can be the best innovative solution to this problem? Well, we had over 130 different drone companies Express interest in applying and wanting to come to Africa. We down selected to the top 10 and we flew them all out to Rwanda with their batteries and their drones and everything. We're talking January, 2020, we did this. COVID wasn't even on half horizons or anything like that. And we ran this amazing competition over a couple of weeks where we just flew loads of drones, doing different kinds of scenarios from all over the world, from everywhere from the US to South Korea, to Germany, to Spain. And they all showed that these technologies are possible. But if you had stepped back and said three years ago, would we have run a competition this complicated in this level of controlled airspace doing this, if it had been a grant, it would have never happened. But because it was a prize, it incentivized
1: everybody to take part in it. Sorry, you've let me chat on about well, this. No, no, I, well, I was just I was just thinking what what you've just described is how you take that sort of, oh, I don't know, commercial thing and not make it a sort of government bureaucratic thing. Do you know what I mean? It's just when people sort of say, you know, we should renationalize the British railways. I just always think that they weren't alive to travel on British rail. They mustn't be old enough to have ever experienced how awful that was. And so there might be some problems with, with some sort of marketplace, but it's significantly better than it, than it was when the government ran it. Because, because all of a sudden, you've got, you're bringing different incentives to bear.
0: If you're bringing different incentives to bear. But also, when you say to a government, like the government of Rwanda, which is very, very entrepreneurial, very dynamic country. And the, everybody there wants to show that Rwanda is doing amazing things around the world. When you come to them and say, we want to do this crazy thing by bringing all these drones and all these batteries and all this technology from all around the world, fly it in, have it fly for a couple of weeks, run a conference that 5,000 plus people attend and then get all these drones to leave your country all in the matter of a month, anybody else would go, what are you talking about? That's crazy. All of these require licenses. How do you do import duty? How do you do export management? How do you do all this? How do you control these? Because everybody is worried about unlicensed drones and everything like that. But because we make it a prize, because we make it a challenge, because we have shown that there's this need for
1: it, everybody finds a way and what's the in rwanda somebody won yes and is the is the winning drone now on its way to delivering blood well no because as
0: we finished covid happened and part of the winning of the competition was to get contracts with the rwandan government but those
1: all had to be suspended But notwithstanding COVID, the Rwandan government has picked a winner, and once it comes out the other side, it will be using drones to deliver medical supplies. It's
0: actually doing what it's done is, because of COVID, it's actually used all of what it's learnt from the prize and gone, actually, I can do this with local entrepreneurs and industry within Rwanda. Can we build or modify existing drones, or can we use people's knowledge from europe or north america or south korea but actually get them to fly it with local pilots can we do something that bypasses the need for the covid restrictions can we use these technologies and rwanda is actually doing that but rwanda's trying to take it as a step further because it's going how do we set up new regulations how do we use new rules to allow drones to be able to be more
1: industry so create an industry around this oh, so you've so you've 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 solved one problem but at the same time what you've done is you fast forwarded the entire country's thinking around a much broader thing which will have a potentially huge economic impact as well as a medical impact so you must look back and go that was a month well spent actually i love being part of this it took a team it
0: took Edward Anderson and Denise and Gregor and everybody involved in it all had to pull together and were working 20 plus hour days and everything to pull this off. But actually the power of it was actually what we incentivized people to do around the world. What have we stimulated? Have we stimulated the drone industry to think about drones in a different way? Even if we've played a small part in it, which meant that people are now going and saying, wow, these drones do work. And one of the interesting things is the winner, one of the winners, because we had three different winners, is now delivering their drone platform, was delivering blood for the NHS to the Isle of Wight as part of the thing. So the level of getting these drones to be used was stimulated. All we did was kick
1: part of it. So the test that you run in Rwanda can be then used by those drone manufacturers or what? others as a proof yeah yeah so you so they they're not even just useful in rwanda they're useful around the world which is one of the reasons why the manufacturers get involved
0: and getting the manufacturers involved was the best thing we did even if it was to the point where we pushed these drones to their limits we pushed the technology beyond what everybody everybody hoped that it could do this and they'd all run it in very very uh, safe scenarios in a field in controlled airspace in Germany or in Spain or wherever, but where we put them, where we had multiple drones in the air at the same time. So we flew drones at the same time. We had to deal with frequency interference. We had to deal with 3G dropouts because some of them use internet connectivity, mobile connectivity to help control their drone or keep an eye on their drone that the all these drones could be tracked. Really, really changed how people thought about what drones could do. Now, COVID slowed everything down and we were supposed to have this big event where everybody was going to be recognized. They had to become a virtual event and everything like that. But these programs, Dom, where we change people or we incentivize a country to focus on a particular problem becomes really key. And for me, this is one of the key things about the crowd. But let's take it back a step. Let's take this idea of
1: incentivizing a crowd, but taking it into the corporate space. Yeah, so that was, that's, that's what I was going to say. Is, is So if you're the CEO listening to this, you're thinking, John D. Slater, he's a good bloke. I'm glad the world's full of, uh, glad the world's got people like John T. in it who've made enough money and are now giving back. But how do you take what you now know and apply it to problems that clients of mine or people who are listening?
0: Let's take it from a corporate aspect. You want to engage your staff on coming up with a new product line for your business. You have no idea what that product line could be, or you have an inkling of where you'd like people to focus on. You're running a pharmaceutical company, and you want to come up with a way to be able to manufacture a particular process faster or something like that. Or you may have something where you're like, actually we just want to have a better way of engaging with our customers. So how can we engage with our customers in a different way? But instead of you employing a bunch of consultants to do this, your staff know so much about your customers, your processes, your products, and they all have really, really clever thoughts. And the reason you employed them is because they are clever. You didn't employ them just to be autonomous robots you wanted them to think as well. But you need to give them a way of thinking about it so that's valuable to them so that they get something out of it, Dom. And this becomes the way to engage with the crowd is how do you engage with them that becomes part of your business's innovation process. Most companies now have some kind of innovation process, or they have signed up that they are trying to be innovative in some way. But engaging with your staff takes effort, takes resources, takes management, and needs CEO buy-in. But if you get them to solve problems by saying you will get something out of it, you can move to another team. If your idea is selected, you'll be then part of the team that will be sent to solve this problem, or you'll win a cash reward, or you'll have lunch with the CEO or something like that, but getting people to, find, no, but people do want to do this. A I know, I know, I
1: know. I immediately thought of some CEOs I wouldn't want to have lunch with, but you know, that's, uh, that's just me. But
0: even then, even when you have lunch with somebody who you never want to ever meet again, just having that kudos of going, I was recognized as being that person that came up with solving that problem, but you need a way of managing them. You need a way of writing the problem up so that anybody from the janitor to the accountant can understand the problem. You can't just say, I want a new app that's going to be a new way of creating. We want to break WhatsApp. We want to have a new replacement for WhatsApp that all of our customers and our staff can use and that will be a game changer for the world. In reality, let's be more realistic. You want to have something, that a way for you to engage with your customers in a way that you can understand what they're doing or how to engage with it. Your staff will be the people who will be able to help you solve that. They will have crazy ideas. They'll have been thinking about this. And if you give it in a way that allows them to structure it so that everybody can understand it, and you reward them in a way that people want to be rewarded, people will engage with it. But it can't just be a one-off. It can't just be, we're just gonna run this a couple of times a year. You need to have processes in place that continuously engage with people throughout the whole process. You could just be, not just part of a newsletter or something like that, but saying, okay, we're gonna focus on different themes every month. We're gonna focus on a different issue every week. And we also want to recognize people and not just reward them because a woman let's make some generalities here and i'm going to be killed in any comments thing in this process now but let's make some generalities a woman in their 30 and 40 is very different from a man in their 30s or 40s a man in their 30s or 40s they want to accelerate their job career they want to go up the ladder they want to have, have a higher earner they want to do something for their world
1: people's individual motivation is
0: different yes where a woman in their 30s or 40s is more likely to want to be recognized for adding some value or benefiting a larger community they're more likely to have been a homemaker they're more likely to want to be supportive and how can you bring that in and how can you engage teams how can you make sure people aren't listening as an individual how do you get people to So that the accountant, the janitor, and the IT guy all can work together to solve the problem. And these are what open innovation is really all about within a community, within organizations. It's about bringing people together to help solve a problem. You're running mini hackathons all the time in a way that allows people to help your business and actually get value
1: out of it. And so you run that, you go in, pick up a corporate client, and you'd run that for a client? We do. But part of what we do is actually capacity build
0: the client to be able to do that. So we work with them. So my my team helps them select the best software out there. So either using their internal software that they've already purchased from Microsoft or IBM or whoever they've bought, or there's other platforms out there like Wazuku or, or others out there that are in the market that can bring these platforms but then work with them on having a process a twelve month plan a twenty four month plan on how they're going to use this so that it doesn't just die off in thirty seconds
1: and also I think I we mean, and also we were talking a little bit before we started recording the show about about helping the clients build a process of prioritizing you know so you know are we painting the bathrooms pink or are we generating a new product that potentially could solve problems for our customers and generate millions of dollars of revenue exactly
0: but i think the part though is that sometimes in the rare case where you can't solve it internally me and my team then work with the client on going outside going to the crowd going and saying okay we have tried to work on this problem the team have got this have this technical issue or they have a process issue or we really haven't come up with anything that's groundbreaking for our business in the last five years that actually our shareholders are making us want to uh, our, our, our share price is dropping and i've been in that situation i've had a product that is not working and the share price is dropping and nobody's gone, wow, how do we solve this? And we've tried everything to get it out there and it really hasn't succeeded. This is where the power of the crowd can come in. This is where the world can help you solve that problem. And how you use the world to engage with the problem actually has a huge amount of value to your business as a brand, but also uh, lets you understand what else is happening around the world because we all live on our own individual bubbles, be it within a particular business, within a particular industry, or within a particular country. But actually there is so much happening around the world and we are so connected through the internet, this information needs to be, people are coming up with ideas all the time and how can you value those ideas? Now, there are platforms that allow you to put ideas out there and you can go and find an idea database and there's a platform called Leading Edge Only Leo that are doing something where they're trying to where they have this whole platform where people can look up people have come up with new ideas a new way to build a camera for their phone and they've put that technology out there and then they want you to license it from them so there are ways to get go on innovation databases but quite a lot of the time people don't like to share their idea people like to be valued for it and either be part of the team or to be given a chunk of money for you to hand over your intellectual property. And it's engaging with those people in new ways so that they can come up with a new biomedical marker for you so that your team doesn't have to invest in it, that you can get your team to concentrate on the things that what your business is good at and not the things that are those kind of random things that you don't know if they're actually worth investing in, but actually could be real game changers within your business.
1: Should we see if there's an answer out there versus investing? So how do you de-risk that? What's the, is there a... So let's just think, you have different ways of doing it. You
0: can run something like an ideation challenge, where you ask people just to give you ideas. And you'll get everything from People drawing you a rocket ship because they hope that just by submitting something, they're going to get a little bit of cash. All the way, people who will give you detailed explanations about why their idea will be the best. And this is inside the company? Inside the company or outside the company. You can do this both ways. Inside the company is slightly easier because usually those company employees are contracted that any ideas they come up with, the company owns, which is changing. And... There's a lot of businesses now that are willing to share the intellectual property with their staff so that they can get value out of it as well. But quite a lot of old, big corporate businesses say you come up with something that you came up with during office hours. We own it, not you. But taking it out to the crowd will allow you to see what's happening in different cultures and in different people around the world. But you need to engage with them and getting in front of them is one of the key things that me and my team do is how do we use it so that we can get people to click on something through Instagram or view something through a different way of engaging with people in different ways. But quite a lot of the time they're doing it because they're bored. Lots of people are bored sitting at home. A lot of people, especially during COVID, are engaging with things virtually more than they have ever before. So this is an amazing time to engage with people, to give people problems to solve. Puzzle websites have seen traffic increase by four to five hundred percent during COVID because people still wanted to be intellectually engaged with the problem. They couldn't go outside. They couldn't do anything. They're missing the connection with their other team members or with the rest of their office staff or their community. People are in more isolation. How can this be a way of engaging with people? So this has been really interesting. The other part, though, is that a lot of corporations use this as a CSR. So using this as how can they be seen to be doing something good? They're giving back to the world. How can we solve world hunger? How can we solve diabetes? How can we solve sanitation, come up with a new kind of toilet? So the Gates Foundation, Bill Gates, came up with a thing and said, how can we make a toilet that doesn't require water to flush it? And loads of people came up with crazy ideas. And the winner was a really complex, technically marvel of a way of processing toilet and your waste. But actually, does that work in delivering that in sub-Saharan Africa? No. So how can you do it differently? And coming up with these ways of engaging with people to come up with problems, and actually allowing other people to help solve their problem is a really interesting way of people giving back. Now you're letting me ramble here again. (laughs) And, And for me, part of what Blue Globe is, we split between two things. We split between the corporate customers, which we love working with, and we see, but also working with the World Bank the World Health Organization, UK Aid, USAID, other donors, other foundations, how can they use this crowdsourcing, this open innovation problem? How can they engage with people around the world to come up with solutions that could help solve problems? So at the launch of COVID, when COVID started kicking off, everybody was starting to work on ventilators. And the UK government launched something called the Ventilator Challenge, where they were trying to get UK businesses to look at ventilators and how they can manufacture low-cost ventilators because a standard ventilator costs, standard price, 10,000 pounds. It's an expensive thing to build a ventilator. They are complex, they're connected up, they are a replacement for your lungs. They have to manage at very particular pressures. But those don't allow you to scale those kind of things. And the UK government decided through UK Aid and through DFID to actually see if it could be done through industry, and that was done through the BIS, but also what was happening around the world. Can we engage with innovators around the world? So I was part of an amazing team that's still gone going because we're now working on other projects COVID related, to said, can we develop low-cost ventilators? can we take diving equipment that's built in America and match it up with some kit that's being used in Kenya and manufacture another part in South Africa that could make a ventilator for $1,000? Now, it wasn't done the way that you could do it because we ramped up. We went from zero to launching a challenge in a week and a half. There wasn't a lot of time to think about it and the specification the specification that we used for the ventilator actually was found once we learned more about covid actually wasn't what is the best way to treat but what it did stimulate is everybody thinking about the problem and there are now people now building manufacturing new ways of coming up with Ambi bags, which is the bag that sits inside a ventilator that that gets pumped, the the air gets pumped through. All of these things have been stimulated by what the UK government has done, but also the US government and governments across the world in how can these ventilators be manufactured and reduce the cost of ventilators. Now, we've also now learned that ventilators actually aren't the best way to deal with a lot of COVID issues. But at the time that we launched the prize, that was the the thing that we knew. Ventilators were what was working in China. And that is what everybody said, that was the way everybody was gonna get treated. Now, we are now five months, six months later. It feels like everything has changed. But what COVID has generated is other problems for organizations around the world because supply chains have ended. So, how can these supply chains be solved via crowdsourcing? So, can we come up with local solutions? Can we come up with new ways of healthcare being managed? How can these be done in a way that the crowd can help solve these problems? How can you find out what's happening in Egypt and in South Africa and in Nigeria and in India and in Bangladesh? that people can learn from. How can we share this information? And one of the key things that's come out of COVID is that people are willing to share information more than ever before. People are willing to put their idea out there and go, okay, I'm not gonna worry too much about the intellectual property because actually I want to help another organization on the other side of the planet. How can we value that? And I think this is where the value of the crowd And it doesn't have to be a prize. It can be a grant program. It can be a challenge fund. They all have different names, but they're all about how can you use money to stimulate people to engage with a problem? How can people come up with a new way of solving a particular issue? And look, I can come up with 20 ways it will work, but also I know having run now nearly 500 of these kind of challenges, programs around the world, and sometimes I worry that I've done too many because I know what I've done wrong. The first challenge I ever run when I was working, the first challenge I ever designed was amazing, but also I got it wrong. And I now look at it and go, I had a prize for an idea that was a quarter of a million pound prize money. And in reality, it should have been 25000 It should have been 10 times less. But at the time, a quarter of a million sounded a really, really amazing amount of money, and it inspired lots of people to engage with it. And some amazing energy storage technologies, when my first prize was about energy storage, came out of it. And the technology is now being used around the world. And actually, the winner you'll find this interesting so the winner of the energy storage technology was a way to store hydrogen but part of their testing about it showed that actually the way that these hydrogen was being stored in little ceramic balls actually was really good at deflecting cosmic rays so instead of it being used for energy storage florida space company a florida space company came along and acquired the right to coat spacecraft with these tiny ceramic balls filled with hydrogen because it deflected or absorbed cosmic rays, so made spacecraft industry more able to be safer and have thinner skins. And this is where an idea, for one thing, people went, wow, I have read about this, but could it be used for that? And the more that we expose people to ideas, the more ways that these ideas can be used. And everybody loves to solve problems. Even if it's just how do I get from from the front door of my house to the back door of my house without stepping on Lego or toy bricks or anything like that? How do you solve those kind of problems? Do you create a different shoe? Do you communicate it so something so that you don't step on it and hurts too much? Can you solve these kind of problems? And I think this is engaging with people and people putting these issue problems out there, these challenges out there for people to solve helps support those businesses but also allows other people to engage with their problem and actually you could find it as a way of engaging with your customers even there are water companies who have gone and said
1: how do i come up with new ways of doing water leaks?"
0: job team i know, i, I, I could go I, on forever
1: <laughs> yeah absolutely so some things haven't changed at all in all the time we've known each other exactly you know you know me i can talk for an hour. so what i'd like to know is what is it you know now though that you wish you'd known earlier
0: to trust myself more that actually when i know something's going wrong i should trust myself to go there's something wrong and to stop but when something feels like it's going right i really should give everything
1: to it okay that's uh that's very profound
0: uh, well do you know what at, at, at this point in the life where where would you go
1: along the way i guess you've read uh read a number of books Uh, Maybe some of them relate to uh, open source innovation, but not necessarily. What what few books do you think people should pick up and read?
0: Look, if you want to have, there's a a book called The Open Innovation Marketplace. And that was a, a book written about 10 or 15 years ago. And it was the way that gave me a lot of deeper understanding about open innovation. But actually, for me, I want to learn new things i love learning about new things so something like a brief history of time stephen Hawking's book blew my mind because i went how do i understand that how do i if i can understand that what else can i understand because of that and so stuff like that really interests me the other book that (laughs) is a bit slightly more out there is one of the things i've had to learn is to give my brain space to think to be able to come up with things. When a client sends me a problem, how do I abstract it? How do I solve that problem? And I've been looking at the power of breath and how do you breathe? And how can you find a way of breathing in new and interesting ways? And there is a book called Just Breathe by Dan Brulé who looks at different ways that people have used breath to use it for meditation or pain relief or just to stimulate your mind in different ways around the world. And out of that book, I came up with different ways of me being able to just concentrate by just using the power of breath. So I know it's a bit
1: out there. Oh, no, I think that I, I you see what I love about the one of uh, many things I love about the podcast, but one of the things I love about it is that even if I only did it, even if nobody ever listened, and I only got it. I only did these interviews to get book recommendations. It would be worth it just for that. Perfect.
0: Dom, this has been real fun. Thank you so much for for the chance of doing it. And I hope anybody who's listening to this, who hasn't got completely bored after listening to this podcast and me waffling on has actually found something interesting and, um, has found this to be a useful um, time in their day.
1: Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As a token of your appreciation, it'd be fantastic if you could go wherever you're listening and leave me a review. Those reviews really help other people find this podcast. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to dominicmonkhouse.com Dot com forward slash podcast and there you'll find some fantastic show notes additional reading and links relating to this episode you can also find my blog and the past editions of my subjectively not crap newsletter the simplest thing to do on the website is to sign up and i'll update you each week on the most interesting articles that i've read on all things relating to scaling up high performing teams net promoter score company culture etc for social, you can find me on Twitter, Dom Monkhouse, and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse. although LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me, share your questions and comments, and, and perhaps even recommend a guest for a future edition of the Melting Pot podcast. Thanks for listening.